Well, good morning. Let me echo Steve's happy Father's Day. And so we've got a lot of folks who are away today. We have some fathers that are away today. Jonathan is up at Searcy with our teens, and he'll be there all week. So they've been celebrating a typical ministry holiday, which is whenever you can fit it in. So I think they did that a little bit yesterday and uh, may get to see each other some this week. But uh, they're on the, the, the summer schedule. And so we will see very little of uh, most of our teens as they're in and out to various events going on from now until school starts. But we certainly appreciate, uh, I know, appreciate entrusting my children uh, to, to Jonathan and, and to Allison and those that work with them uh, with our youth ministry here at Summers Avenue. So they're having a great time up in, in Searcy today. So uh, Thomas Edward Lawrence, T.E. Lawrence, was born in uh, August 16th in 1888 in Wales. And so popularly known as Lawrence of Arabia, as many of you might have picked up already, Lawrence became famous uh, with his exploits as a British military liaison during the Arab Revolt during the First World War. And so the the desert raids of of the British officer T.E. Lawrence and his, his Arab partners, his Arab rebels, they distracted from the Turkish troops uh, as who would have been fighting the main British armies in the Middle East. So he provided a little bit of, of a distraction there uh, to help the, the effort. And so Lawrence's struggle against the Turks during World War I was a classic guerrilla warfare. And his personal account has become quite famous, obviously a classic of world literature. And so, of course, many of you have seen the movie about the life of Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, and so Lawrence wrote about his Arabian adventures and Seven Pillars of Wisdom. And during the war, Lawrence formed a good close friendship with many of the, the, the Arab sheiks uh, who had worked with him and that he had come to know. And so after the war, he brought them back to uh, some of the sheiks, back to England, and to show his appreciation for their help, for their partnership. And so uh, they had a wonderful visit, appeared before the, the Joint House of Commons and Parliament. They had an audience with the Queen. And so when it came time for them to leave, on the last night of their visit, Lawrence told them, he said, look, you can have anything you want to take back with you to, to your desert homes. And so they took Lawrence and they led him back to their hotel rooms. And in the bathroom there, they pointed to the faucets in the bathroom and they said, we want to take these faucets home with us so that we can have water in the desert. And so obviously they didn't realize that the faucets were superficial. The faucets are just a fixture, right? Because behind the faucets was plumbing and a hot water heater, a source there, an energy source that heated the water. Uh, they had a city main that supplied the water. And from the city main, uh, there was a line that went to an outside source of water. And so there's no magic in the faucet. It's especially wonderfully made for a, for a particular purpose. It has usefulness. It's a designed vessel through which the water flows. And so the faucet can be 24 karat gold. It can be you know, diamond studded. But if it's not attached to a water supply, it is useless for the purpose for which it was created. John chapter 7 and verse 38, Jesus says, Whoever believes in Me, as Scripture has said, Rivers of living water will flow from within them. And God can have all of the plumbing in place. He can have the pump hooked up. He can be ready to pour out blessings on His people and on the world. But He wants us to be the vessels. God wants a vessel. He needs a a faucet. And so dads, men, all of us are created in Christ Jesus to be vessels through which God can pour out His light into the world. 
In 2017, there was a a survey done by the Pew Research firm. It said 57% of fathers said that parenting was extremely important to their identity. 52% shared that work-family balance is a great challenge for them. And I'd say that probably the other 48% just didn't respond, because I think that would probably be 100% feel like that's a challenge. 76% of men responding said they face a lot of pressure to support their families financially. And while 49% said they face a lot of pressure to be an involved parent. And then most dads, some 63% of those, said that they spend too little time with their kids compared with 35% of mothers who felt the same way about time and, and their children. And among both dads and moms who said they spend too little time with their kids, work obligations were cited as the, the biggest reason why what was getting in the way. And I know that you may think that 93.7% of statistics are made up, right? You'll get that in a little bit. But regardless of the survey or who's compiling the results, what the big picture says it, to me is this, that now more than maybe in years past, as we look at, at, at fathers in general, they're more engaged with, with intentionally plotting their children's future and in times maybe other than the recent recorded past. And I think this is good news. This is good news. And the challenge for us is to direct our engagement and our intentionality towards spiritual development of our children. And so in many cases, the only thing that stops the movement of God is a lack of a vessel. And that's not to say that God's incapable of doing anything without human participation. Absolutely not. But as we've seen throughout Scripture, God prefers to work through a vessel. And so from the beginning, God's intention and His purpose seems to be that fathers be their children's vessel of faith. And so when God was ready to pronounce judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, you remember that Abraham was visited by these these. Three messengers of God. And first they came to reveal the the miraculous birth of Isaac that was expected, that would eventually come to to he and to Sarah. But then they also came to, to talk about what else God had planned there. And so they came to let him know what was coming to Sodom. God's reign of judgment. Because Abraham had family in Sodom. And God thought enough about Abraham to reveal this to him. Listen to... Genesis 18 and verse 19. For I have chosen Abraham so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. And so Abraham would know the will and the action of the Lord so that his faith would be strengthened. And then Abraham would impress upon his children the trustworthiness and the provision of God. And so he experiences it, and then he passes that on. He expresses that to his children. And so Abraham became a vessel through whom God is pouring out this blessing. And not only to Abraham's immediate family, but to generations that follow. And so by faith through Christ, we are all Abraham's children. And as Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So we must, fathers, impress upon our children the trustworthiness and the provision of God. So how do we do that? How can we go about doing this? Well, first of all, we have to believe it ourselves. We have to experience it ourselves. And so there's no magic in the faucet. And the power behind the faucet is the source of the wonder and the marvel. And so the success of life 
is not the pursuit that our kids need to set their life ambitions towards. The highest promotion or the most successful business or perhaps the greatest discovery or the most useful invention. These are worthy pursuits, but remember we talked last week a little bit about how success in any area, in any form, when it's achieved through godly means, can be a, a, a bring glory to God, be honorable to God. So it doesn't matter the avenue or what it is. If it's done through godly means, we can bring honor to God. But when our happiness and our identity or our worth or our manhood is all wrapped up into obtaining or accumulating or hanging on to stuff in this world, then our heart's going to be divided and our loyalty is going to be unclear and our children will know that. And so we're going to be sorely unready and unable to cope with the high percentage of disappointment that comes in living in a world like this, a world that's bent towards the pursuit of self instead of the pursuit of God. And so do our children know that the Lord causes the sun to rise on, on the evil and the good? Do they know that the Lord sends rain on the just and the unjust? Do they know this? Do they know that the failures in life, while they might be attributed to our own poor choices or our own lack of ability, that those in no way reflect our worth to God, the worth that God has attached to us as His precious creation. Do they know that? Do they understand that? Do our sons know that to man up or to pull yourselves up by your bootstraps, that that's not in Scripture? Do they know that? But this is, as Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that He may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. And so accepting the, the humbling experiences of the, the ebb and the flow of life's success, it begins with acknowledging our humble existence before Almighty God. And so it's not the, the, this big God who has the ability to wipe out your existence. What does He say in verse 7? Cast all your cares on Him, all your anxieties on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. Do our daughters know that their worth does not equal what they look like? It does not equal their appearance. Do they know that God is more concerned with their inner heart than her outward appearance? That worth doesn't equal what she does because God cares more about who she is than what she accomplishes. Do our daughters know that their worth doesn't equal what other people think of her because it only matters what God thinks of her? And although many children have grown up completely able or seemingly able to cope with life without, you know, in spite of their upbringing, I challenge us today to not be a statistic. Don't add to that statistic. Let's be intentional. And as long as there is day, there is opportunity to change. There's opportunity to be intentional and to lead by example. And so in a secular world where kids are constantly hearing these, these competing worldviews, the questions are going to come up. They're guaranteed to arise. Kids are going to have questions. But there are many reasons kids never actually ask them. Oh, they have questions. But they may not ever ask them. Maybe, maybe they have too many other things going on. Maybe they haven't been still and known that He is God. Maybe you're too busy and have too many things going on. Maybe they're afraid of your reaction to what they might ask. Or maybe they're simply not interested enough to bring them up. We have to be intentional fathers in initiating conversation. We've got to start it. And then being ready for the conversation regarding questions of faith. And it's okay to not know the answer. 
Do not be afraid of not knowing the answer. Don't be afraid to not have an off-the-cuff response, scriptural response to every question or every challenge. What's not okay is leaving it that way. Don't ever leave it with an I don't know. Search together. Find the answer together. Man, there's training in that. And we can provide a, a powerful example to our kids about how you deal with questions of faith. And so we can do everything we can to, impre- to, to, to improve our personal, our professional lives. We look for ways to sacrifice, to, to improve our, our professional abilities. And yet, do we put our faith on autopilot? Is our faith running on neutral? Our children see us working. They see us working long and, and hard. They see us sacrificing to move up our professional ladders or, or to win that corporate account or provide for the family or, or complete a project or, or reach a goal. They see all of that. And those can be good lessons. Absolutely good lessons. Lessons on responsibility and lessons on determination and drive and attitude and endurance. But do they see us striving equally intent on spiritual health and spiritual growth? Do they see the balance in our lives? Because what priorities are we setting for them by our example? So how do we expect their priorities and their life's focus to differ from what they're used to seeing? So we may want to teach them to change a tire, teach them to bait a hook. We may want them to to cut a straight line or, or thread a needle, balance a checkbook, absolutely, tie a tie, tie their shoes, Swing level, stop a ground ball, start a fire, put out a fire, right? We may have a list of life skills that we want them to to know and to learn and for us to teach them. And when God was preparing His kids, the Israelites, to venture out into this brave new world, this, this promised land that He had brought them to, there were some life skills that God wanted them to know also. He taught them some things. He taught them how to cook food properly. He taught them how to deal with certain sicknesses to to keep from spreading and killing everyone. He taught them how to handle conflict. But what was the primary thing? What was the most important thing that God wanted them to to know and to live as they ventured out into this this land of uncertainty, this land that was in front of them? What was it? Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 1. These are the commandments, the statutes, and the ordinances that the Lord your God instructed me to teach you so that you may carry them out in the land where you are headed. And that you may so revere the Lord, that your God, that the statutes and commandments that I'm giving you, your children and your grandchildren, all your lives to prolong your days. So pay attention, Israel. And be careful to do this, so that it may go well with you. And that you may increase greatly in number, as the Lord God of your ancestors said to you, you will have a land flowing with milk and honey. And so listen, Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You must love the Lord your God with your whole mind, your whole being, and your strength. And these words I am commanding you today must be kept in mind. And you must teach them to your children and speak of them as you sit in your house, as you walk along the road, as you lie down, and as you get up. You should tie them as a reminder on your forearm and fasten them as symbols on your forehead. Inscribe them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. Faith cannot be accomplished as an afterthought in the quest for the best life that we can give our children. Faith must be a priority because no matter what success or failures they may experience and no matter how long the seasons of health or illness may be and no matter the relationships or the friendships that may come and go in their life, there is one constant that remains. And that is the faithfulness of God. 
The one constant. And so our challenge is to instill the knowledge of that faithfulness so that they will expect it and they will recognize that faithfulness, whether they're in the penthouse or the jailhouse. And the only thing you should expect out of life is that life is unexpected. And so fathers, our children need to know that God transcends life. He's the author of life. He he is unaffected by the circumstances of life. He's the provider of eternal life. And they need to know that. Yes, absolutely they do. But they will have a greater chance of coming to believe that if they see that faith present in our lives. And so even when young children have to do what their parents tell them to do, they may well intend to do what their parents actually do. Do as I say, not as I do? Probably not. As soon as they can get away with it, they're going to do what they've seen to do. And so if, if, we, if we make our kids use seatbelts or helmets or, you know, don't text while you drive, but we don't model these safety behaviors ourselves, then they're more likely to let these precautions slide when they get a chance to take charge of themselves, when they're turned loose. <laughs> and so most modeling influences are silent. Silent influence. A parent does not have to say, watch this. A parent doesn't have to say, this is how you carry yourself in the world. You don't have to say that. The child's going to learn it by observing. What are they learning? don't have to understand what the parent's doing in order for learning to take place. And so modeling does not always dictate a child's behavior. Kids won't inevitably do everything that you do and the way that you do it, but it's an important an underappreciated way to transmit information and transmit experiences and, and skills and beliefs and values. Large segments of behavior. Paul sent Timothy to, uh, uh, to teach godly behavior to an ungodly church. And he writes in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 16, he says, Be conscientious about how you live. And what you teach, persevere in this because by doing so, you will save both yourself and those who listen to you. And so essentially, it it could be said this way, Timothy, if what you say doesn't match your actions, you will destroy those who follow you. And it's the same for fathers. It's the same for parents. There's a, a certain degree of inconsistency in modeling, and its relationship to what you say. And that's inevitable. There's going to be inconsistency because we are human. You're not only the model in your child's life. There are other relatives. <laughs> there are other friends. There are other influences, teachers, peers, parents. They're not just watching their peers. They're watching the kids whose house you sent them to. Media. So on. We've got to teach our children how to navigate the inconsistency of life. We've got to teach them that and that that map for navigating these treacherous waters. What's the only consistent thing in life? It's the Word of God. It's God and His instruction. He's the only constant in life. And if God is an occasional visitor to your life, then how can we expect our children to invite Him to be a lifelong resident in theirs? Proverbs 22.6 says, Train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. And oh, how we love this verse. We love this verse. People who aren't religious love this verse. But it's not the only proverb in this collection. And in fact, you know what precedes this verse? What comes right before it? Because there's a little connection there. 
Look back up in verse 1. A good name is to be chosen rather than great wealth. Good favor more than silver or gold. The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the creator of them both. A shrewd person sees danger and hides himself, but the naive keep right on going and suffer for it. The reward for humility and fearing the Lord is riches and honor and life. Thorns and snares are in the path of the perverse, but the one who guards himself keeps far from them. So then, train a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not turn from it. Connection. And there's a, this is not an assurance. This is not a guarantee. Remember all the other inconsistent influences in the lives of our kids. Choices are going to be made. Free choice will show itself. And these Proverbs, are, they're poetic instructions focused on how the young should, should uprightly live well in a society that honors God, that, that considers itself under God's dominion. And so Proverbs are taught through overstatements. You know, it's the all or none kinds of sayings. That's, that's what a proverb is about. It's the, the type of writing. It's purposeful. And so the point of verse 6 here points back to Deuteronomy 6 and the heart of God's instruction to the family here. Train up your child in the ways of God. Talk about them. Demonstrate them. Incorporate them into the life of your family. And when you do, they will have a solid foundation. They will have a life-orienting point of reliance upon which they can always depend whether or not they stray from it. It will remain constant. And fathers, we are the faucet through which God will pour out His wisdom to our children. So the question is, are you accessible? Are you making yourself available to God and for this purpose? Are you connected to the source? Barner Group did a survey about Bible transformation earlier this year. And so when asked about the Bible, has the Bible transformed your life? Here's what an adult sampling revealed. Six in ten U.S. adults, that's 59% surveyed, believe that the message of the Bible has transformed their lives. 59% says the Bible has transformed my life, including one quarter who agree strongly. 26% say, I strongly agree. The Bible has transformed my life. Roughly two in five adults, 42% says the Bible has not had such an impact. So we're still on the upper scale the majority of those surveyed said the Bible has impacted my life. The majority of adults still believe the Bible is transformational. Does Bible engagement positively correlate to relational and spiritual growth? Well, half of monthly Bible users, 59%, agree that their engagement, they're using, they're, they're, they're seeking the Bible, the Scriptures, has made them feel more willing to engage with their faith. So the Bible gives me confidence to engage with my faith. Among adults who use the Bible, I know this is small, I'm telling you, so at least three to four times a year, three in five, that's 61% express, they always experience a greater awareness of how much they need God when they engage the Bible. Half of them agree they consistently feel a sense of connection with God when they engage the Scripture. In a similar proportion, 50% say, the more I engage the Scripture, the more I desire to know God. 
Another 46% say they show more loving behavior towards others. One in three is more generous with their time or their energy or their financial resources. And so the results show this positive influence on how they treat people different than them. Different races, different genders, different socioeconomic. The Bible guides them and they notice they treat people differently when they engage Scripture. Their support for refugees changes because the Bible is about refugees. Their decision at work or at school is different. 53% said yes, their decisions about sex and sexuality. All of that is positive through their engagement with Scripture. Now here's the negative. Bible-centeredness is decreasing and skepticism is growing. Bible-centered adults have decreased from 9% to 5% in this past year. And there's another trend that's, that's more than a third of adults reporting that the Bible, uh, they're using the Bible in 2019. 10% increase since 2011. So here's the deal. Here's the sum up here. More people report that the Bible is beneficial to their life and overall it's a good thing. It's a good thing for individuals and societies. And yet less people are engaging with the Bible. This is great. This, is, this has got words of life in it. This, when I read this, I'm a better person. When I, when I do what this t- instructs me to do, my relationships are better. My work is better. I see people more lovingly. More people now agree, yes, that's a fact. And more people aren't picking it up. (laughs) It's like, I know this medicine will cure me, but I'm not taking it. More people recognize the value of indoor plumbing. (laughs) But less of them are actually connected to any water. I love beautiful... I love walking through Home Depot and, you know, Lowe's, wherever. I love looking at the fixtures. But the fixture does me no good on the wall at Lowe's. It's got to be connected for my usefulness to, to, to serve me. And so, so Jesus was teaching He is the bread of life. He is the source of God's eternal life. And many of His, his disciples, Scripture calls them disciples, many of the people who have been following Jesus, listening to Jesus, at one time believing Jesus, they turned away from Him. They left Him. And so Jesus turns to the twelve. He turns to the core here. And He says in, in, in John chapter 6 and verse 67, You don't want to go away too, do you? Are you going to leave me too? And Simon Peter answered Him, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. You're the source of life. We have come to believe and to know that You are the Holy One of God. What did they just say? They had come to believe. And how had they come to believe? Through the teaching and the modeling of their Father. Yes, in the body of His Son. Their Father showed them the way. And perhaps many who turned away in that day, many who who left at that moment, maybe they were in the group of 3,000 that we read about after Pentecost. Maybe they came back. Or perhaps they never did. But it would not be because they did not know. It would be their choice. It would not be because Jesus wasn't intentional enough to share the truth of God with them. It would be because they had no connection to the source. And so, fathers, our responsibility is to teach our children through word 
and through action. It's our responsibility to create an environment where the wisdom of God is invited in to be the guiding principle for life, our life, so that our children will accept it for their life. It's our responsibility to guide our children to understand faithfulness to their Savior. And it's our responsibility to imitate Christ so that our children can safely imitate us. And it's our responsibility to demonstrate not only the love that God has for us, but how we love our children. And it's not only important for us to demonstrate how God loves us by the way we love our children, but also demonstrate God's love for us. The forgiveness and the restoration that God extends to us when our human failures prevail. And we demonstrate that in how we respond to the choices our children make. Our children get an idea of God, a sense of God, through those of us who profess to follow God, to be children of God. So how do we handle, how do we react to life? Your professional life may be 24 karat gold. You may be just blowing and going, man. Your hobbies may be 24 karat gold. Your finances may be 24 karat gold. Your marriage may be 24 karat gold. But those are no accomplishments to brag about. They're really not. Because here's the deal. If the vessel that is you is connected to the source of life, then it is God who should get the glory for those accomplishments. It's His glory. And if the vessel that is you is not connected to the source of life, then all of those accomplishments, all of that success, you are a faucet in the desert. And while they say good intentions can pave a proverbial road to hell, the best intentions will not provide connection to the lasting source. Only commitment can do that. Are you committed to Christ today? Are you committed today to being a leader for your family? Fathers, mothers, grandparents, church. Because our kids, our parents are looking to you, those with no longer auburn hair. We're looking to our elders to show us the way on a path that we have yet to try. It's new to our feet. So we're looking to see how did you navigate. We're not looking for perfection. We're looking for persistence. We're looking for dependence upon God. How do you depend upon God in times of uncertainty? This morning, the first way that we show our dependence upon God is to surrender our life to Him. Say, Lord, no longer my will, but Yours be done. And the only way we can do that is to die to ourselves. And there may be some sin that we are holding on to. Some attitudes or some actions, a way of life, a, a circle that we have attached ourselves to that we need to detach from. The only way that we can experience this life flow that God gives us is by freeing ourselves from that sin. So today, will you repent? Will you turn away from that way of thinking, that way of living? And come back to God. Put your faith in Christ once again. Ask His forgiveness. And then receive it freely so that His power can flow through you again to be a source of of life in this world and glory to Him. 
And if you have not been baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, why not today? What a great Father's Day present. Maybe your Father is no longer with you. Your Heavenly Father is. And I can think of no greater gift He would want than for you to submit your life to Him through Jesus Christ. To be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. To receive His gift, His Spirit, and His promise of eternal life. So this morning, we're going to stand and sing a song of encouragement. If we can help in any way this morning, will you come?